This episode of the Edifice Complex podcast is brought to you by Tether. Get smart, get tethered. Blue Rhythm Commissioning Software and Sensor Suite, the future of intelligent buildings. Welcome to the Edifice Complex, the property design and development podcast. Let your hosts, Adam Muggleton and Robert Bean, keep you up with who is innovating and doing great work perspective on the adjacent possible and challenges to the status quo. Welcome to the Edifice Complex. I'm Robert Bean, your co-host and unofficial mediator here with my colleague, official agitator, friend, and Yoda of most everything to do with buildings, Mr. Adam Muggleton. Say hello, sir, Yoda. Hello, sir, Yoda. Okay, interesting conversation today, right? So uh, I think the first time I met today's guest, he was still learning how to shave. <laughs> he, holds, uh, he holds citizenships in three countries, has degrees in political science and history and commerce. And that's going to be an interesting discussion because there's a lot of stuff we could probably learn to build. And he's the North American president, one of the world's largest producers of building solutions, a company that goes back to 1918. But there's a DNA strand that runs through that company, goes back to the 1620s. Welcome to the show, Mr. Bill Gray. Thank you. It's great to be here. Bill, when I uh, go back and I recall the times that we met, and often it was on the floor of a trade show, and like today, you still find it really important to have those one-on-one relationships with your clients in the same way that you've built relationships with your colleagues and the teams that you're building today. It's a character trait that Adam and I admire in senior executives, so tell us how you got to where you're at and where that DNA of your skill sets come from. I got into what I do. Running Upinor, I came up through the sales side of the business. I've always been frontline customer service, whether it was my first job in uh, delivering newspapers as a kid and stocking grocery shelves and pumping gas. I've always, I think, done well in customer situations and building one-on-one relationships is obviously just an extension of that. Everything that we do is built around people. We rely on people to help build and run our businesses our customers and the relationships we have there. It's all about moving the ball forward with people you like to work with. Yeah, that's really where I get my energy. So, Yeah, and who influenced you on that? Was that your parents, friends, family? Those are character traits that normally, when I go back and I think about the people that I hired for my own business, and Adam, you're the same way. What you just said in terms of the newspaper routes and pumping gas and the grocery, I did all that too. And I asked people when we were interviewed, so what did you do in high school? Like, what did you do in the summertime? Like, how did you pay for those bad habits you've developed for the rest of your life? (laughs) I think probably, you know, if there was money and, uh, uh, you know, a a viable career in it, I'm sure that there is a viable career for a lot of people. I would go back to my favorite ever job was being a bartender. Um, (laughs) So (laughs) it's not for the fringe benefits, free booze and the the so-called spillage. Literally sitting across from people one-on-one having either at one end of the spectrum, kind of just basic conversations about how your day is going to those repeat longtime customers who you get to know over a period of time who check in once or twice a week or whatever, you know what their drink is. And and you have a, a conversation that might start one month and three months later, it's the same conversation, but there's been gaps in between. It's just long-term relationships. I've always had those kinds of relationships that I can remember. Some of my best friends are people that I don't see, but maybe twice a year or check in with twice a year, but where you pick off exactly where you left off. And and so there's a level of continuity. 
But, you know, coming back on the why bartending, I mean, it's just the relationships, it's the conversations, it's you get a feeling that you're moving through this journey of life in parallel and intersecting courses. So I thought it, that was one. Who knows if this whole building products leadership gig doesn't work out? I can go back to that. I think it's safe to say it's worked out. <laughs> yeah, my, uh, my wife and I always had this. She was also similar in service industries, and we actually met uh, working at the campus bar at university back in Halifax years ago. We've always had this dream of a B&B, and I think a lot of people get into B&Bs with the dream, and then the reality crashes pretty quick, at least that's what I've heard. But the whole idea is that you can be a host of people in your premises or in your life and you know serve as well as become a part of their lives. And again, it's this whole notion of traveling with intersections. I've always been fascinated by that. So there is a great takeaway straight away. Be a host, right? So mm. if you're running a business, all businesses are people business, and everyone's got to run a digital business. They just don't know it yet, right? But mm. just taking that be a host thing, right? So no matter how digital and online you go, there is still a relationship element, right? You know, and yes. some firms just forget that, I think. So be a host is such a great way to, I really love that, just to get that all into one thing. You know, you want to lead, you want to have good customer relationships, be a host, be a problem solver, be a friend. I remember back, it was in one of my iterations of school, of university, and coming across, there's a notion, I think it comes out of the, a lot of the Middle East tradition is this um, hospitality, and the you almost had a sacred duty to take care of travelers and those kinds of things. And I don't know how that impacted me, but I often think about that, this notion of we are all moving forward, we're going to a destination. It's not about the destination. It's about that journey. And then life is really about those check-ins or intersections that you have, those things where you collide with other people and other things. And that's, and that's really what, at the end of the day, I think when you look back, that's what your life is. That's what your reflections are. It's not, you know, where I lived or what house I had or what car I had or whatever, or even the job or title or salary. Yeah. Or anything. It's not that. It's going to be about those people and those meaningful intersections and, and or interconnections that you build. So I've kind of had that perspective. But yes, I think that one of the strengths that I bring and one of the most useful things was being in hospitality. I always look for that, you know, full disclosure when I'm looking at a resume for a potential candidate. If somebody's had that kind of experience in their past, plus on, on, yeah, their, yeah. on that <laughs> resume, because I think there's a lot that's built in that. I think of, again, going back to bartending or restaurant service industry. If you look at the way some of those folks work, they're handling multiple things at the same time in a very high-pressure environment. So if you think about what work is like now, we're always asked to do more with less. Yeah. So if I look at project management or if I look at some of the challenges, the people who can make it and the people who don't necessarily make it, it's you're dealing, again, with trying to provide high quality in a hectic environment with a lot of ambiguity. I mean, now if you look at the, the current situation with mm -hmm. COVID, we still need to serve our customers and our customers' worlds yeah. are on fire at the same time as ours are. Yeah. We all don't know what's going to happen next. And so people who can, again, deal with pressure, deal with spinning plates or juggling balls, whatever, whatever analogy you want to use, I think those are useful skills. And that background of hospitality, I think, is really, really, to have done that successfully shows some character traits, um, some skills that are definitely um, transferable to the, to the world. I remember talking to my um, 
father-in-law, he was a dentist and taught at uh, Dalhousie University. And he was on the uh, student admissions. And one of the things he always looked for in that role was people who had had, you know, either coaching or team leadership, captain of a team, those kinds of things. They're looking at yeah. skill sets that are transferable, in, indicative of the type of things that you're going to have to face in this new career. And uh, now with all the data sets you can have, you can say those are things that are predictors of success, et cetera. But my view on that would be, I think, um, hospitality and sales and service go together. It's interesting because, I mean, the business you're in at the moment, Upinor, which we're going to talk about in a minute, let's say the construction industry for one of them, a wider term, right? So that's a very transactional, like, you know, be killed type business, right? But what you're doing there, you're bringing in that like be a host, pay it forward type mentality. And that's interesting because when I coach people, I always point out, particularly engineers when I coach them, the engineer never runs a firm. It's always a generalist. Why is that? That's the curse of knowledge, isn't it? Yeah. The curse of knowledge and being awesome engineer (laughs) means typically, and don't everyone get triggered here, you know, you're not great at interpersonal skills normally, (laughs) Facts and data can get in the way of a good story is another way to say that. Yeah. My challenge with running a uh, building products company where marketing, the best marketer in building products is still a very technical data dump type of the sales. But where we try to stand out is to really bring true marketing to that. And if you think about what marketing is, it's really looking at identifying problems and trying to find a unique or innovative solution for that and then bring that solution to market and hopefully yeah. make an economic return on your effort. If you look at engineering, it's about, in some ways, solving a problem in the most efficient way possible. And sometimes those two things collide because the efficiency doesn't necessarily allow for a lot of innovation and thinking outside of the box. We have a challenge at Upinor as to how do we make our very technical, engineering-oriented people think like marketers, which is more about innovation and different ways of solving problems. My experience is engineers are very quick to tell you why something won't work, (laughs) which is what they get paid for because I'd like to know why the bridge isn't going to stay up in the air when I drive over it as opposed to (laughs) the marketer who might say, well, under these conditions, it could. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I want right. a little more certainty than that. So, I mean, so it's it's like yeah. everything. There's a tension, a push pull between those things. Yeah. One couldn't exist without the other. And I think engineers, we could be a very engineering driven company, but it could get in the way of being an innovative company. I sometimes say, as a, an exaggeration, to make a point that I'm not sure how aware people, the audience is of, of what one of our unique. Uh, differentiators is, but it's that uh, that's PEX pipe with the cold flare expansion, where in other words, you expand PEX pipe, which has a, yeah. a, that elasticity, insert the fitting, and then the fact that that pipe always wants to go back to its original extruded shape creates a very positive, con- very simple, very positive yeah. connection by deforming around the barb and the fitting and yeah. all those kinds of things. I often say to our engineering folks who are in marketing, if some guy came with that product today in our thinking we would tell them a hundred reasons why it wouldn't work and why we don't want anything to do with that business yeah so that's again the exaggeration to point out really to that team is you got to really continue to think about new and novel and not discount just based on a built-in predisposition to want to go with what's worked in the past 
The edifice complex will continue in just a moment. Robert, Robert, we are yet on board. <laughs> it's hard to believe, but the future has finally arrived in Canada. How's that then? Well, smart remote building and equipment management is now available from Sensor Suite. Go on. Sensor Suite, yep. They're an innovator in smart building technology. We like them. They can monitor, control, and optimize anything in your building, saving you time and energy. You mean Sensor Suite are moving Canadian buildings into the 21st century? Yeah, I know. Another hard thing to believe, but they're doing it and they're saving owners money with efficiency gains. Okay, I'm in. How do I find out more? Got to go to sensorsuite.com or call 1-855-773-6767. And also check out the July 2020 episode of the NFS Complex podcast and listen to Sensor Suite CEO, Glenn Spry. And now back to the show. So I want to have a discussion about copper versus PEX actually, but one, hmm. let's do that once we've spoken about Upanoir. First question is, Upanoir, that's a pretty cool name. How did that come about? <laughs> I uh, sometimes joke that it's uh, a Finnish it's a, <laughs> I don't even go. <laughs> That's yeah, not for this <laughs> we'll, we'll cut this one out. This will be edited out. So, Upanor actually does have a meaning. It doesn't mean anything literally in Finnish. Upo means brand, loosely translated. Right. And Nor is obviously Nordic. So, Nordic brand, if you put the two of them together. I remember a few years back, Volkswagen had the commercial or the advertisement where they introduced the world to the concept of Farfagnugan. I don't know right. if you remember that. Yeah. I try to sometimes extend Upanor to meaning innovation in Finnish. It doesn't, but that, that, <laughs> that's kind of my, uh, that's okay. kind of my uh, off-the-cuff answer sometimes because it is an unusual name, and you're probably not too surprised to realize how many times it's mispronounced. I heard some really good ones. I always like if I'm going to speak somewhere or I'm on a panel or something like that, and somebody, there's two things in my bio, that person that's going to introduce me, that really get them hung up and they always come over and say, so how do you say your company name and what was the school, what was the university you went to? So the university I went to was Dalhousie, which yeah. if you're Canadian and yeah. understand that we don't have that many schools and Dalhousie is quite well known, yeah. it's easy for us to pronounce it, but I get Dalhousie, um, <laughs> I get uh, whatever, and then of course Upanor is Uponor or Oop, or, or what was the Uponor? Uppenor is probably the most common Uppenor, one. yeah. North America, that sounds right. Uppenor. Yeah. yeah. And then, uh, and of course, you get the uh, chuckle, 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 up honor. Um, <laughs> yeah. Which, yeah. in the plumbing industry, you know, I mean, that's probably not surprising. When we're down talking to the U.S. on some of our classes and we, we get harassed for putting you in words like mold, for example, or color. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. I said, the only reason why we put you in the words, and so that when we use the word louver, you don't get confused. <laughs> I like that. I do have to say, though, moving to the U.S. and getting accustomed to, uh, to U.S. spellings, we did have a lot of redundant use in uh, Canada. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a lot. The reductionism actually sometimes works when you're dyslexic like I am. The reductionism in uh, American spelling is awesome. <laughs> Very well, well said. Yeah. So maybe I should change my name to Bob for you, Adam. <laughs> yeah. I can I can spell that. That's good. Three letters. I'm all good. Yeah. Keep the O in the middle. You're good. So Robert mentioned that your firm. Upanor goes back to 1918 and has a link back even further than that. What's that about? We have three segments, North American building products, European building products, and then our infrastructure division. 
North American building products, the heritage or the legacy is the Swedish company Beersbo, which is actually a small town about an hour or so right. outside of Stockholm. And it's Beersbo Brook and Brook. When you add Brook, it means works. Same way as we would say works. So Beersbo Works was a small metal forging any town, like back in the Middle Ages, any town that had a running water would have a water yeah. wheel. Yeah. That water wheel would be harnessed for power, for uh, milling grain and running a forge and all those kinds of things. So Sweden is fairly rich with, with iron ore. So these works, these forges, these forges, are, I mean, there's probably hundreds of them at the time. But uh, this one, actually, the water wheel in the little town of Versbo still exists. And we can track the Versbo company, which is the North American legacy company of Upanor, we can track that back to the 1620s as a continuously operating company on wow. that same piece of real estate. So in the 1980s, 1988, Upanor, which was a company that had its start in the wooden furniture business, as they were growing through, they took wooden furniture turned into plastic furniture, which turned into this emerging plastics industry, turned into plastic, focus on plastic pipe which then looked at, well, how are we going to take our value prop? And yeah. then the rest of the Upanor businesses kind of fell away, which during that time they had appliances and they used to build refrigerators and deep freezes and those kinds of things, all for the very small Nordic market. And Europe in those days was very protectionist, yeah. where a small company like that could exist and be viable. But as the borders fell apart and competition came, then, then it became more challenged. So, so they took kind of their assets and put their investments into the plastic pipe business, the Versbo company, of which there was a North American entity, Versbo North America, was purchased in the, in the 80s. Now, they changed the name under a kind of a brand unification effort in 2005-ish, I think. So, Versbo North America became Upanor, which was quite interesting because a lot of, you know, obviously a lot smaller impact, but when you looked at the radiant heating market, which is a small piece of the North American uh, HVAC industry, the Wurzbo name was kind of the Kleenex of the radiant heating yeah. business. And, and yeah. so, so a lot of people wondered, why are you kind of destroying brand equity of Wurzbo? You've built this up. And it, it was so strong, in fact, that when I was approached in Canada to take on the opportunity of the GM of Upanor, I said, my little question was, what is Upanor? And then if you noticed on their letterhead, probably for a decade, 2005 to 15, we were always Upanor, formerly Wurzbo, in our letterhead. Upanor still does have a lot of brand equity. When I was early in this job, I took the president role in 2012 after having moved to, to the U.S. And we're not a huge business. We're about 1,000 people, kind of approaching about a half billion. And we live in, the, or we're in the Twin Cities area, which is home to the highest per capita Fortune 500 companies. So the brands in the Twin Cities are 3M and um, yeah. Ameriprise and United Health. And I mean, these are multi-billion dollar companies. And then here's a little Upanor, but we got the opportunity to go on um, Greater MSP Business Show, which was a half hour broadcast show on Sunday mornings forever. It was on uh. maybe for 50 years. And the host of the show asked a similar question. She says, uh, I haven't heard of Upanor. What is that? And I said, well, you probably know us for our underfloor heating, our radiant systems. And she says, well, I never heard of that, but I got a Wurzbo system. <laughs> and I said, that's yeah. us. <laughs> yeah. 
It was funny, Bill, like when you guys went through the change like that, and I couldn't believe it because of all of the goodwill that was associated mm. with the Wurzbell brand name. And I actually, I can't remember who it was that was at that time, but I offered to buy the brand name. I said, well, if you're going to zero value it, I'll take it. <laughs> but I, for some um, reason, they wouldn't sell it to me. I don't imagine why there was, there was literally, I believe, you know, almost very senior defections from the company. There's a lot of passion around the Wurzbow name. Now, we still keep that name. Our heating systems and our heating pipe is still branded with the Wurzbow name, yeah. but it's a sub-brand to the Upanor brand. And when you yeah. think about branding activities and how companies work, I've worked for companies that have very, very strong brands in their space, but they were part of a greater company. And the power of brands in an increasingly crowded market there is a lot of rationale for trying to group them under a single brand that represents a meaning and a promise that customers can identify with. And more importantly, is something that you can leverage as you build into parallel or uh, adjacent markets. So if you think about where have we taken Upanor or Wurzba, where have we taken that? We were under floor heating until the early 2000s. Predominantly, we were known as their business. Underfloor heating is the smallest part of our business today. And we've grown significantly, but we've leveraged the Upanor name through into residential and commercial plumbing, now even extending beyond PEX. We were always synonymous with PEX piping and PEX-A piping specifically. Now we've launched another polymer pipe, which allows us to go into bigger diameters, higher pressures and temperatures, so more of a commercial building. So we've leveraged again, Upanor to go farther into, into that space. So that the promise of Upanor means similar things across all of those verticals that you're operating. When I think about, you know, the businesses that I was involved in over the years of my career, and I was always taught to believe that, you know, the sequence public relations comes before marketing, comes before sales. In other words, getting the brand recognized and then creating that demand for that brand, and then obviously capitalizing on the sales. When I look at Upanor and then Orsbo before that, you were masters at doing that. And when I think about European companies that have come to North America and succeeded and those that have failed, that public relations was a big part of it. And Upanor and your team, and this is one of the things that impresses me about them, is that you have a macro message that extends beyond just getting a purchase order for a product. And I think that has run through the veins of your company well, for as long as I've known you, you know? And there's a lot to be said about that. You get a lot of other companies that are so focused on getting the purchase order, getting the purchase order, they forget about why they exist. And I think with Upanor and, and before that Wurzbo, is that there was a bigger story that you were trying to tell in terms of building environments and sustainability. Like you were talking about that long before anybody else was. If you think back, I think that it's, the, it's Peter Drucker, that kind of management guru that everybody knows, who said that businesses exist to serve customers or to create customers. And I think that you have kind of ends of the spectrum. You have companies that have parts and pieces and widgets, so to speak, that they can manufacture, so they push them to the market. Or you have companies that exist at the other end of the spectrum. Everybody's somewhere on that spectrum or on that continuum that exists to serve customers and be one step ahead of customers. In other words, understanding not necessarily just what they need today, but what direction is the market going. And if you look at a company like Upanor who started out in Radiant, 
that was a, a non-existent industry with a promise that it's a better way of comfort. And that's, you know, yeah. that's, I think where, where Upanor and Robert Bean intersect is it's a, it's a better way of doing something. And if you're trying to teach a better way, there's a lot more involved in the sale or the conversion of customers or advocates for that product. So that automatically causes you to have to go deeper and to understand needs on a different level. I go back to saying that part of Upanor's legacy and why we can extend into other markets so so easily is our heritage is going to customers that they didn't know that Radiant was better. So you teach them, you help design, you help apply, and then ultimately you hope that they're going to buy your product at the end of the day and you actually get paid. But you've advanced all of the relationship and knowledge and the transfer of knowledge and, and, and building that business on a good world basis. I mean, you've done yeah. that. We didn't get paid for training our, our Radiant folks for the most part. We didn't get paid for building that, but we hope to live off the revenue from the pipe and fittings and manifolds and controls that we saw. So there's a legacy there. The challenge with that is once you've transferred that knowledge, then the companies, Robert, that you're talking about can come in and sell them pipe yeah. and or manifolds and or fittings and or controls. Once you've done that initial knowledge transfer, they don't need you after you get to them a certain point. And I always say that Atlantic Canada, one of my experiences there was, that was probably one of the higher densities of radiant heat or penetrations of radiant heat in the market, was once everybody knew that the average design was either 8 or 12 inches of 5 eighths pipe on center with a 20 degree delta or, or temperature differential, and you really, with Radiant, you know, some people um, will shudder when I say this, but you really got to be about about 50% accurate um, <laughs> in, in your, in your design. Yeah. Yeah. Design days accepted because the system will work. Will it work optimally? Will it work as, as best? No. But you have this margin of error built in. So customers could automatically now, they don't need Upanor at that high price, PEC, say, you know, some PEX B, whatever product will be good enough, and then they can pocket the rest of that money and, and live quite happily. So you have customers that buy into your value proposition, that understand that they want to do a great job and they want to serve their customers. Those are the ones that we want to serve. We're not interested necessarily in the guy who's, you know, fly by night or, or 50% accurate and the thing works 85 times out of 100. No, I don't, I'm not interested. So there's a value prop and then you can say, that's yeah. built into our legacy, our DNA. We're about training the industry. We also know with Radiant, with our plumbing, that we have to not only be at the codes and standards tables and meetings and committees, we've got to be there and hoping to shape those for the future because those bodies are notorious for being resistant to change and for good reason. You want to have those checks and balances with new technology especially when you're building you know, homes and houses and buildings that are going to be around for 100 years. That's a long time to have something that's not right. So we try to play all sides of that, shaping, trying to be positioned for what's next. And that's probably some of the things I think that when you make the comment, Robert, that we're different uh, than everybody else, there's people who want to be part of that. And there's people who are more comfortable being in the more commodities side of that, which I just want to sell the pipe, I just want to sell the fittings, I just want to, I just want to train, or I just want to do controls. That's fine, but ultimately somebody's got to pull it all together, and it has to be, the system needs to be integrated, and the customers need to customers, whether it's the contractor, the engineer, or the end user, all want to be satisfied. The edifice complex will continue in just a moment. 
Robert, I have questions. Why aren't our buildings more like cars? Shouldn't our buildings warn us if something is wrong and could impact our health and safety? Why can't our buildings tell us how efficiently they're working? Why, 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 why? <laughs> well, they fit, Adam, and they can, you know? Our philosophy is designed for people, good buildings follow. This whole indoor environmental quality thing is becoming real important all around the world. Well, Tether Hub developed a mobile access property identity engine, and that enables landlords and property managers to monitor indoor environmental quality metrics plus energy consumption. It's all about making better decisions based on real-world information. Get smart, get tethered. For more information, go to tether.co.nz, and you can also hear from Tether CEO Brandon Van Blurk on our June 2020 episode of the Edifice Complex podcast. And now, back to the show. Well, I'll, I'll give you an example. We, were, we got into a discussion with basically the people you were describing who were just there to sell the product at any price. And we were talking with them about the success of the brand doesn't happen really in the first sale. It's when someone asks for it on the second time around, right? And so we said, why would you want to create a no-name brand product for future consideration? Like if I'm buying a house, you know, 50 years from now, I want to recognize the name. I want, the, I want that name that has been around, has established a foothold, has not come and gone like a many, many companies do because they can't afford to stick around because they didn't make enough money, you know? And that's what happens with some of these low price operators, right? Yeah. They just can't sustain their operations. So why as a home buyer, if I'm going to invest and pick a number, half a million, a million, five million, $10 million home, why would I want to have something in there where there's just no... There's no depth to the product. They come and they're, and they're gone. I want to buy something that's going to be around, you know, and that, something I recognize in the future. And that takes profits. You can't create long-term recognition, the brand name, on a shoestring budget. You have to be profitable. And, you know, the industry that we're in, Bill, your company has managed to survive a lot of that cutthroat operations. And kudos to you for doing that. We are getting, one of the things about this interview is people in school, in business colleges, engineering colleges, listening to you and your words that you have, what would you say to somebody that's, you know, studying today? Well, A, your own kids, would you tell them to go to business or engineering? But that would be my first question for advice. And what advice do you have for kids in school these days, thinking about where we are today with COVID? And where we're going to be in four years' time when they graduate or eight years' time and graduate if they're working on an advanced degree, what would you say to them? I've reached some level of maturity. In other words, <laughs> and, and by some insurance plans, the AKA Freedom 55, I should be uh, on my way out now. I'm not going to because I really like what I'm doing. But I think one of the advantages of getting to a certain age is that you have perspective. And my, the perspective gain for me is I think a lot of kids are given the choice on what they want to do, but the reality of the professions that they choose, whether it's medicine, law, dentistry, whatever, those high-end professions that people so-called aspire to, it doesn't matter what you do. You're going to have to find your level of happiness and satisfaction inside of each one of those choices, whatever, whatever it might be. I know lawyers who are you know, completely studied a lot, had a high hopes, and then, and then when they come out, the chosen profession just doesn't meet the expectations or the excitement or the satisfaction. Medicine, 
dentistry, all those are, are very similar. So there's an element of what are you bringing to this profession as a person? So you have to continue to be curious about that and how, and, and drive it forward. So you got to know yourself and what, and what's going to excite you. I know contract or plumbers or, or guys who want, I went to school with who became plumbers and roofers and uh, a few guys that went to sea in the Coast Guard or in the Navy or whatever, who are far happier than the folks who are doing these other things. It's about a perspective that they gain is that they look at life a little bit differently. And I think that's really where true happiness is going to come from is how do you look at life and are you continuously excited or interested about the things that are going on around you? How resilient are you as a person? All those things. You know, it's pretty hard to maintain and elements of optimism with some of the things that are going on now, but there's a lot of optimistic people and those optimistic people are the ones who are going to lead us forward. So I would say that no matter what you do, stay curious and stay optimistic and always look for the new things that are happening that are going to change. You'll find a lot of, a lot of happiness in that. And I don't think it matters what profession. I think that I do joke a little bit, like I said, I, I'd love to go back to being a bartender because I think that resonates most with the types of things that make me happy, which is, you know, continual change. I like a little pressure. I think I speak well under pressure. I like to, to meet new people and I'm fascinated. I'm a naturally curious person. So most people, if you give them the opportunity, you can learn something from them. So yeah. keeping that open mind. I think if I learned anything, it's by prejudging or trying to guess what's going to happen in a situation. I often find out if I'm honest with myself how wrong I am. By some elements, actually, I get paid for guessing what's going to happen now in the sense of forecasting the business. And even in that perspective, I try to look at how long can I keep my options open when I haven't committed to one side or another. And that's pretty much how we're approaching this COVID thing is we're not battening down the hatches and stopping everything in the face of a lot of economic uncertainty right now. We're trying to do prudent things to trim back where we can so that we're maintaining as many options going forward as you can. And if I look at what you uh, mentioned, my kids, I have two daughters, one that's just graduated high school this year, heading to university next year, and one that's heading into 10th grade. I tell them, learn a trade and then go to college, but they don't listen to me anyway, so it doesn't matter. That was the advice that my dad gave me was learn a trade and then figure, then figure out what you want to do, because you can always fall back on the trade. I Same was way. dumb and didn't listen to my dad. So now I give that advice. Um, <laughs> yeah. That's interesting. I want to ask you about just, so I'm coming to the end. So what I was fascinated about when I was looking at the Upanor website was how, I mean, I started 40 years ago, right? So a plumbing supplier was a plumbing supplier and a plumber was a plumber and never a twain shall meet, right? And there was no, and a designer was a designer. So what I really liked about the Upanor website was the mix of like, supplier versus design advice versus intellectual training, right? So you've got Robert on there doing a course, FYI, everyone listening, right? So the evolution of that from where I started 30, 40 years ago is just immense, right? That's not recognizable. But what the other thing I'm fascinated on is, so kudos on that, but what I'm fascinated on, when I first moved here to North America, which was about 14 years ago now, where I come from in the UK, forced air, heating, and cooling is for social housing. So when I came here and realized I was going to have a wood-built house with forced air, heating, and cooling, I was horrified. And I insisted to my realtor, get me radiant heating and a brick-built house. Well, she laughed, and I didn't get any of that. But radiant heating, so the thing I really zeroed in on your website was radiant heating. So let's assume you've got all the money in the world, and I put a gun to your head. Does your house have radiant heating or cooling? 
Yes. <laughs> my house that I live in today, yes, it does. As I've been at Upanor for uh, 2008, I said 12 years, yeah. and it's the first house I've had radiant heating in. It was in, and it was a Wurzbow system when we moved in, and that was part of what sealed the deal for me. So, yes, we do. Not throughout the house, though, only on the, I, have a, I kind of live on the side of a hill, right. the walkout basement. So, the walkout basement piece has that. In fact, the office I'm sitting in has radiant. The only thing that I've done is redesigned the uh, the boiler system for it uh, since, since we moved in. But the, the distribution system or the emission system was there, the heat emitter okay. system. I mean, what's one of the challenges in North America is there's a larger part of the market which is cooling, and you do need a redundant system in most of the North American yes. climate. And I think in the UK climate, at least, there's still a lot of homes that have central cooling. So. Yeah, that's that's probably plus. I think it's energy costs, right? I mean, yeah, North energy America is expensive in the UK. Why? Yeah, I still think energy is almost free here. I'm so used. Gas prices, it's, energy uh, prices look very low to me uh, in North America. You know, one of the things that at some point, and and I remember that you could sell a ground source heat pump system based on an ROI. Yeah. Now, if a guy's on a propane tank or only has electric out in the middle of the country, you might get an ROI. But if, if there's gas anywhere near that, you don't choose ground source heat pumps for their ROI. You choose right. them for self-declared green reasons or efficiency reasons or longevity reasons. There's those kinds of challenges. I've often kind of half-heartedly commented that probably one of the best things that could happen to the HVAC industry in North America is a doubling or tripling in gas yes. prices. It would probably be great for the sustainability movement as well. It would obviously be very uncomfortable and a huge dislocation for a huge part of the population because retrofits would not be cheap. But again, I think longer term. I think in the UK also, you build houses with a lot longer lifespan. It's nothing to rip down a 50-year-old house here because it's cheaper to build newer with the newer newer building envelopes and technologies yeah. and, and those kinds of things. So. Professionally, what I found here was I mean, making the case for heat recovery ventilators is impossible because because I mean, you know, payback's a thousand years or something stupid. You know, it's like, who's doing that? Unless you're doing performative virtual segment, when there's a lot to be said for that, actually. Yeah. That's the triumph of lead, you know, the marketing of lead. It gives you something to boast about when you wouldn't do mm-hmm. it for any other reason. And that is mm-hmm. the genius of lead, actually. So just one last question, then. You've got all the money in the world. I think, though, just on that yeah. point, though, is I, I believe that it's been demonstrated that lead or energy efficient buildings have a better return on investment in almost any real estate market. And I think that people have proven that. So operating cost does become important. So I think there's an investment case. It all depends on who you are. If you're a developer to sell, then no. But if you're a developer to own, that might be, yeah. There has oh, that's the difference. Some papers on that. Yeah, yeah that's yeah. the difference. The long-term ownership makes a big difference. Yeah. I'm, not, I'm not a fan of lead to, of building certification. I think it's a load of marketing poop in the big scheme. However, it takes you to the right direction. The right answer yeah. is performative targets in building code, but you know, with lobbying and every all the slowness that goes on there, then things are always ten to fifteen years behind current situation. Right. So, one final question then: Gun to your head, you got all the money in the world. You are Blofeld. Pex pipe or copper pipe? Oh, packs all the way. <laughs> Top man. I said, I would go copper, but I think I, it's because I'm an old my, dude. <laughs> you asked me about my house and whether I have radiant. Yeah, I've got radiant, but I also have copper plumbing. Right. And I just happened to be sitting in my office below the kitchen. 
So even if you don't look at the productivity efficiency advantages from a contractor's yeah. perspective, I mean, every time my wife turns the kitchen tap on, I hear the water running through the pipe above my head. Now, if that was PEX, if that for nothing else, it's quieter. And yeah. I mean, I think the best house you live in is you don't hear when the toilet flushes or the That drives water me mad in my house. house. What's that? You get million dollar houses where I live, and you can hear it when someone uses the washroom. It drives me crazy. <laughs> You've all been in in hotels with paper thin walls, and yeah. how annoying it is when your neighbor gets up to have a shower when you've got another fifteen minutes before you got to hit the snooze button. I don't understand. Given those choices, we should probably do, and we we do it a little bit of a soft sell on that. I believe that's probably one of the one of the best things is you just don't have the noise of. And then when they shut the tap off, you don't have the, the water hammer. And yeah. the, you don't need hammer arresters and all those kinds of yeah. things. So that is a significant improvement in building, whether people realize it or not. Well, it's a comfort factor. And thank you for using the word tap and not faucet. That made me feel very homesick. <laughs> <laughs> That's my heritage. That's yeah, my heritage. Exactly right. <laughs> well, Bill, listen, thanks for coming on. You know, your own story, there's a lot kids, students today can listen to in terms of, you know, being that frontline person, the hospitality, being the host. You know, if you're an academic or a, an engineering nerd and you want to have an engineering company, ultimately you have to deal with people. And you've done a masterful job of doing that, uh, running a technical company. And Upanor, as a firm, when you look at high-performance buildings across the world, not just in North America, but across the world, the name is always there. It doesn't matter. It, how you know, hospitals, museums, whatever facility that's that's getting awards today in the last, especially the last fifteen years, your name has been attached to those buildings. So good job on that. Keep up the great work. Love working with you guys. Always love the message. You know, better human environments, and I'm all about that. As is Adam. As practitioners, mm-hmm. we're always looking for that part of it for our clients. So thanks again. Appreciate it. Thank okay. you, and appreciate the interest in Upanar and the support. Take care, guys. Thank you. Take care. The Edifice Complex will continue in just a moment. Adam, it's time to thank some people who are on our side. Blue Rhythm Commissioning Software. Blue Rhythm is the commissioning software I've been looking for. Most projects I consult on suffer from poor information and document management. Frankly, it's just chaos out there. Blue Rhythm removes this chaos. It is a secure, always available cloud solution designed to work on any computer, tablet or smartphone. Their Android and iOS apps allow seamless transition between online and offline work. But what I like most about Blue Rhythm is their painless and fast onboarding process. That team will bring all your existing forms and checklists into Blue Rhythm for you, or you can use or adapt their pre-built, pre-functional and functional performance test sheet templates. But it's more than that. It enables collaboration, automation, and easy planning and project management for all your projects. Blue Rhythm provides amazing support from a team that really understands your industry. To find out more, go to bluerhythm.com or call country code plus one, 612-460-8305. Also, you can hear from Blue Rhythm President Andy Martin on episode 26 of the Edifice Complex podcast. And now, back to the show. So, Adam, another great interview? Yeah, I was... Very impressed with Open on Bill because a plumbing business, right? Either installing or supplies or anything, that can be a, a bit vanilla or a bit boring. But, you know, I encourage everyone to go and visit their website and I'll put the link in the show notes. You know, this 
is more than a plumbing business or a fixtures business. This is a solutions business. I loved his concept of be a host to your clients. Yeah, that was really good. Yeah, yeah. that was my well, he, And he takeaway. made a statement there about, you know, the Middle Eastern philosophy, a sacred duty to protect the travelers coming through. And I've seen Bill do that, you know, at conferences. Yeah. And he wasn't always as confident as he is today to stand up. I remember the very first time when he spoke in front of a crowd. It was a large crowd. It was in Las Vegas because they had this annual event. And, you know, like anybody else that gets up and starts to speak to thousands, and I mean thousands of people. But, you know, he's always got that steady confidence underneath him. His words of advice to, you know, people in school talked about his friends in the trades or whether it was the professions, yeah. but know yourself. Stay curious, stay positive. In yeah. today's circumstances, you know, people are listening to this podcast in the future. It's COVID time, right? We're into, what is it? It's like the, well, March, April, May, June. We're going to be approaching four months yeah. of basically a lockdown. Staying positive is hard to do, but, you know, really that's what's going to get us through. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this was a really turned out to be a great interview about soft skills. And, you know, the engineer never runs the engineering firm. Please take this on board, people. If you want to <laughs> lead, be a leader, be a team person, run a business, you've got to deliver at scale. That means soft skills as well as being great at your job, right? Yeah. It's not and or, it's normally both. Yeah. So, Please take that on board. No one says this to you when you're in college. One of the great disasters at university colleges, no one sits you down and tells you the facts of life. They just like pump you up, fluff you, push you out the door, and then you blunder around till you learn the life lessons the hard way, I guess, right? That's how it happened for me. Yeah. Well, you know, Michael Gerber wrote a couple of books, uh, The E-Myth. I was about the yeah. entrepreneurial myth. And there was a great message in there, you know, that you can be the technician or the business owner, but you can't do both unless, well, you just can't. If you love the engineering and you love the technical stuff, then go work for an engineering company. But if you want to be the owner of an engineering company, you have to be that leader and you have to decide where you fit. And to try to do both is just going to cause grief for you. I remember when we had our business, we sold to Danfoss. And I had just got out of school, University of Calgary, business owner transition program. And then it was a come to Jesus meeting. I had to decide what the hell I was going to do with this business. Was I going to be the business owner or was I going to be the technical guy, right? And yeah. ultimately, I had to decide that I love the technical side, but I also like the business. So I actually brought my brother in, who's a, you know, an accountant and a professional. He's a, you know, the guy, yeah, well, I could trust him and he knew what he was doing when it came to yeah. finances, general management, operation of the building, making sure that we had a strong fiscal plan going forward. And of course, my training at the University of Calgary Business Owner Transition Program fit with his philosophies, which we learned from our dad. You know, having him and letting him run the business while I ran the technical side, it was perfect. That's what allowed us to grow. So this is all comes down to self-knowledge, know yourself, be honest with yourself, right? Yeah, you know, if you want to be a striker for Chelsea, can you actually put balls in the net is the question right it's not personal it's not I don't like you Adam it's can you score goals Adam right that's the question <laughs> <laughs> there comes a point where your mum has to stop telling you you're awesome at everything because you're just not right yeah. you've got yeah. to sit down and decide there's nothing wrong with being a great engineer but if that's your strength go for it 
because an yeah. engineering job is a great job. But don't kid yourself, you're going to be the CEO of the firm, because you're not, unless you yeah. broaden your skills to take in soft skills and find a way to deliver at scale. This yeah. is the key thing. People used to come to me and say, Adam, how do I be a partner? How do I be a, an associate in the firm? My answer always was, well, I look at you and you're doing that. And what that normally meant was you have clients who would go apeshit if you left, right? Yeah. You deliver projects at scale, with, i.e. with team members around you, right? You've scaled your skills. Yeah. And if you're not doing that, you're not going to be an associate or a partner. Please understand this. <laughs> yeah, that's true. And well, so you know, think about the trades guys, right? And you and I both know a lot of trades guys who are multimillionaires. But at some point, every one of them had to have that same yeah. heart-to-heart discussion with themselves yeah. about, do I like being on the tools or do I actually like managing this business? And we know well, a lot of it comes down to where they get their sense of security. If they get up in the morning and they know they have a job because they can assemble pipes and fittings, then that's where they gravitate to. But if you're the type of individual that gets up in the morning and looks at your current net worth and the share value of your company, yeah. you're the business guy. So the trades guys running a business will never get any bigger than the person's own comfort level with this company. Correct. But if you want to become a millionaire, like a lot of successful trades guys are, they had to have that meeting with themselves about mm-hmm. what is this really all about? Am I interested in increasing the value, share value of my company? Or am I want to make sure I got a job in the morning? And there's yeah. a, those are two different people. Listen, there's nothing wrong with having a skilled job and earning money. Nothing wrong with that at all. But nope. you know, sitting there and resenting it because you're not the manager or you've not got your mansion, then you need to have a very straight conversation with yourself. Right? <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. I think it's one thing about Bill is that he's very good at that with himself. But he's yeah. also very good without people around him. You know, yeah. having them ask those tough questions. You know, why are you here? Like, what drives your passion? You know. See, the other thing I take away from Bill and Upanor, and uh, I love that name, Upanor, I love saying that word, Upanor, yeah. that's awesome, <laughs> um, is that you, know, you can take the most traditional, boring, steady business and make it relevant in today's economy, right? You know, that business of plumbing, plumbing supplies, fittings has evolved, and it's almost now a knowledge business as well as a service business, as well as a physical business, as well as a manufacturing supply business, right? And that is a function of leadership and vision, right? Yeah, absolutely. That doesn't happen on its own. (laughs) Nope. No, it doesn't, right? And they've embraced that. Like they've said, how do we become important Mm. in society as a manufacturer and vendor of these types of systems? And they are incredibly important the way buildings function and the environments that we create inside buildings. And so it's one of those aspects that most people in society don't appreciate what the contribution is of these, of these systems. They just don't get it. Like, Oh, they're just pipes behind the wall or in the floor, you know, out in the city or whatever, you know, but without those pipes, we would not be the civilization that we are. There's no doubt about it. There was a lecturer at one of my colleges I went to and he said, who or what has saved the most lives in the last 200 years? So everyone's thinking, <laughs> yeah. It just went all over the place. And he said, the person who invented plumbing. Yeah. Right? Because that brought public health, you know, sanitation, sanitary conditions, hygiene. sanitation, yeah. hygiene. And, you know, it got rid of so many diseases at scale. Right? So if you take away malaria, that's probably the next big one, right? No one thinks yeah. like that because... Was it in the principle, but what is essential is invisible, right? You only know it's essential when it don't work. 
That covers building services, plumbing, you know, sewage, all that stuff you don't like to think about, right? Until it don't work, boy, you start thinking about it hard. Well, there's two things, right? I mean, for people who are online listening to this conversation, you know, the value is if you plug something into your electrical socket that doesn't work, you freak out. You flush the toilet and there's no water in the lines, you freak out. So electrical and plumbing, hey. Totally essential, man, right? And that's the beauty of a career in these things. You can come in, you can be a skilled choice person, you can be a salesman, you can be an entrepreneur. There's so many ways to go with it, right? Because it isn't going away anytime soon. (laughs) (laughs) No, as long as we have biological needs and needs to power stuff up, these particular trades are always going to be needed. And, you know, we didn't get a chance to talk, Bill, about, you know, the direction for people in school have ignored the trade path but he did make a point, you know, his dad said, get a trade first. And my dad said the same thing, you know, get a trade just in case, you know, that you always have something to go back on. Yeah. And I got to tell you, that was the best advice he ever gave me. Like yesterday, I was applying the knowledge that I did as a framer, as a cribber. You know, we we're doing a bunch of work here around the house. There is honor in an ability to use a hammer and a saw and a screwdriver. <laughs> yeah, just so the listeners know, I'm eating my own dog food as well. I've told my son that, and he's actively trying to become an apprentice electrician because they're not going away. <laughs> nope. Nope. You'll always need them. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, take away what you will from that. But, uh, yeah, I found that quite inspirational, that episode, and I'm bloody glad we had him on, actually. That was yeah. good. Yeah. Awesome. Adam, always a pleasure, man. Okay, mate. See you next time. All right. Take care. Cheers. Take care. Bye. You've been listening to the Edifice Complex podcast with Adam Muggleton and Robert Bean. To access show notes for this episode, visit edificecomplexpodcast.com. Also, if you would like Robert or Adam to speak, teach, or consult on your project or business, please email admin at edificecomplexpodcast.com. See you next time.